Greetings from the bridge. It's a beautiful day on the water, and we're easing into summertime here on the Bohicket River, separating Johns Island from Wadmala. I'm the captain, Rick Jones of Fishbait Solutions, steering the boat to all things about sponsorship and event marketing, and a whole lot more. We talked recently about Jeff Henderson's book, What Are You For? We told you earlier that the first part of being was being for the customer. At Fishbait, we are constantly talking about fans because they're our customers. How to engage better with fans, how to bring value to fans, how to thank and appreciate fans. Because in our business, fans pay for everything. Fans are all our customers. As an agency, we work for both corporations and properties to help them better engage with their fans or customers. Because again, let me repeat myself, fans pay for everything. Sometimes our properties just don't seem to get this, especially in college sports. A lot of college sports administrators think their job is to serve student athletes, and they are half right. The other half is the bank, the fan. One of the best things we can do for our family is to provide our family with housing. But can you imagine the person who does everything for his or her home, keeps it clean, mows the lawn, adds new paint whenever it's needed, but never bothers to pay the mortgage? (laughs) Well, you're right. They won't be living in that home much longer. College sports better pay a lot more attention to their mortgage holder, their bank, their fans. You have to be for the customer. But then Jeff pivots, and he next talks about being for the team, because the truth is you can't take care of the customer without first taking care of your team, those those teammates who actually serve the customer. In our line of work, there are lots of teammates. We have our own staff who serve our customers and our clients. We have the staff of the properties who serve both fans and their corporate sponsors, And we have staff of those corporate sponsors who also serve the fans. (laughs) That's a lot of teammates. But each is essential to ultimately serving the customer, serving the fan. I like to use the analogy that a great team is like a jazz orchestra. Every member of the orchestra has an essential role to play. They all bring unique talents and skills to the orchestra. But the absolute is that they all have to be playing the same song. A great jazz band allows for talented musicians to freelance and do their own thing, but they still have to do it in the context of the song that everyone else is playing. My role at the agency is to play the band leader and make sure everyone is playing from the same sheet music. There is great joy in watching agencies, properties, and corporate sponsors who collectively do something special to serve fans. Now, I've told you in the past my story about working on the 1994 World Cup Soccer Championship for MasterCard. And during that period of time, remember, most people thought the only way to leverage soccer in America was to do it by utilizing youth soccer. But we we didn't go that direction. We said, no, no, no. Look at the World Cup 
not as soccer, but as a major event, a major event that was going to attract a lot of people to the United States. And so we carved out this um, this saying for MasterCard called welcoming the world to America. Well, what it really meant was welcoming the world's money to America. And we wanted to make sure that a disproportionate amount of the money that was coming to America was going to be gained by using a MasterCard. So in that process, whom did we all serve? Well, first of all, we had to serve the banks that actually issue the MasterCard cards. Then secondly, we had to serve the merchants who accepted the card at their place of business. And finally, yes, we had to service the fans of the World Cup, the fans who would actually use their MasterCard card. The band leader at MasterCard was our client, Mava Heffler. And the lead trumpet player was Lisa Murray, who worked with me. And we had a great team of teammates, including Tony Signore of Allen Taylor Communications, who is now the CEO of what is called Taylor. Plus, we had literally hundreds of MasterCard associates, agency people, banks, merchants, and executives from the World Cup Organizing Committee. The sponsorship was a joy and later was written up by the Harvard Business Review. Great teams have great teammates, period. So how's your team? Are you for your team? You better be. Speaking of great teammates, my special guest is Teresa George, Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at the Circle Television Network. Circle is a joint venture between the Opry Entertainment Group and Gray Television. My good friend Drew Reifenberger is the president of the network, which is all about country music and the country lifestyle. Teresa is the consummate teammate and a great juggler because her title says she has to deal with a lot of disparate teammates. Let's spend some time talking with Teresa George. From the bridge. Teresa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you today. Uh, Anytime I have a guest, I always start with the beginning. Uh, Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in a little town in Texas called Bridge City, tiny. you know, it had a Dairy Queen, and that was about it. I've been, I've spent a lot of times, my wife says we've done two tours of duty in Texas. We lived in San Antonio. In fact, our son was born there, and and then we lived in, um, you know, north of Dallas in Plano, but I don't know where that town is. Tell me where it is. It's um, between, it's between Lake Charles and Houston is the best way to, okay. to right on the Louisiana line. Yeah, okay, down there in the bayou. Yeah. Lot, exactly. Lots of yeah. humidity, lots of Cajun food, lots of, uh, that's a fun area. I, I, I tell people a lot that, you know, one of my favorite signs is when you you cross I-10 in Louisiana at the Orange River, right there in Orange, well, Texas. Uh, yeah. Orange, Texas. Yeah. Well, uh, we're the next town over. Okay, so you, you cross that thing, and it says, Welcome to Texas. 
And then I think the next sign says El Paso, 1150 miles. <laughs> you know, there's, I think it's 750. You know, and being from Texas, you're always so proud of it. And I would always show my kids that because my husband's from England. And, you know, I said, look, Texas, just the state is so much bigger than the whole country of England. So, yeah, I would always show the kids that sign. I know exactly the one you're talking about. Well, we're going to talk a lot about music today. Um, and obviously, Texas is just rich with music history. Mm-hmm. I I am, this is one thing people may not know about me. I am a collector of Bob Wills albums. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, I'm a... I love Texas swing music, and I, re- I read a book a few years ago, and it's interesting, you talked about your husband. This was a book written by a Brit about his finding Bob Wills. Basically, it was him t- driving throughout the state of Texas, you know, ending up in Turkey, Texas, uh, but it was the Bob Wills kind of journal, and it was, you know, it's one of those travel logs of all the places that he ate and the characters he met and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but did, was music always a big part of your life? It was. Um, my parents, you know, a lot of times, you know, your parents play music and all that kind of stuff. My, my parents didn't, but my uncle, uh, played the, you know, the, the, the Hammond organ and, uh, played in clubs. And so I can remember, and my, my parents didn't find out this till years later, but you know, my, my grandmother had one of those, you know, big cars back then with the big hood and she would take all us grandkids and we'd go down to the bio where the honky tonk was. And she would let the grandkids lay out on that hood and listen to that music coming out of that honky tonk. Cause you know, back then a lot of them, even, back then didn't have air conditioning and, you know, air conditioning was, was common, but back then a lot of those old places didn't. And so you could really hear the music coming out into the parking lot. And, and I remember just laying up on the windshield and listening to that music and, you know, uh, that my uncle was playing in that band and, you know, I, you know, as a kid, just loving it and thought, boy, that's, you know, that, that's just awesome that you could do that. And then, you know, spent so much of my life, you know, sitting on a, you know, uh, you know, band equipment on the side stage, but in much bigger venues. So anyway, it ended up coming full circle. Well, I've been to some fun places in Texas. Green Hall is one of my favorites, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, where you two-step and drink long necks and just, you know, have a great time. I think somebody told me one time, I don't know if his story is true or not, but there was a kid that was played um he was a student at san marcos college which is now texas state and he was playing in the house band at uh, at green hall meaning the backup band and one day he told the lady that ran it he was going to go to nashville and do a demo guy's name was george Strait. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it worked out for him. Uh, yeah, yes, it did. It worked out. Well, did did you go, when you got out of school, did you go immediately to work in the music business or where did you start? No, I didn't. I, um, I, I went and got a journalism degree and my dad was super worried about it um, because, and, and I remember so plainly, we were going to go in a, we went to the next town over in Orange and we were going in a Taco Bell and they had a, a, a sign up for night manager. 
and dad said, and it said how much they it paid, and and dad was like, a night manager at Taco Bell is going to make more than you with a journalism degree, you know, and he was really worried about it. Um, but I got a journalism degree at Sam Houston State, which was Dan Rather's alma mater, yep. and um, came back and was going to try and find a job in TV because that, I, I loved uh, TV, but didn't get a job in TV, but the editor of the newspaper in our local, you know, in Orange, uh, called me and said, we've got a position open. And I went and did that for a year and a half. And at the time, it was voted by Time Magazine as one of the best small newspapers in the country. So it was just this great, um, you know, experience just writing every single day. And and then, you know, I moved to the East Coast and, you know, I was in hard news the whole time. And um, did some television and, you know, different things and then decided, you know what, I want to, I want to get in the music business. That just sounds fun. And so I moved to Nashville, rented a U-Haul, put it on the credit card and moved to Nashville and decided I was going to work in the music business. And I didn't really even know anybody. So, uh, I applied at the CMA and they had read in the newspaper, they had a position open and applied there and kind of went up and down music row, handing out my resume for a bit and, and got that job at the CMA and, and, you know, that kind of, you know, set the trajectory of my life for um, decades. Well, talk, so, talk about about that, about what you did at CMA. Well, it was amazing job. because I, I got to town in 88, in May of 88, and the class of 89, and they, they talk about this class of 89, was Garth Brooks, Vince Gill, Travis Tritt, Alan Jackson, Clint Black. And so B- that bunch class, of nobody, bunch of nobodies. Yeah, yeah, I mean that class just really, you know, changed country music profoundly, and it was this um, incredible surge all through the '90s. And so I worked there all through the '90s, uh, and that was when they they were really doing a lot internationally. So we had a London office, we had you know people in Sydney and Amsterdam, and so I was going, um, you know all over the world, uh, you know, with the CMA board. And that was amazing. And, um, I was running their PR and then eventually their marketing and membership and, you know, uh, doing a lot of their creative services, uh, running that too. So it was just a really fun time. And Vince Gill was hosting the, um, the CMA awards during that time. And, um, and so that was an amazing experience, you know, and I, I'd graduated from college in two and a half years. So I was really like, you know, in, in my 20s and getting to do, you know, all of that, which was, you know, from a small town and you're getting to do that. It, it just felt kind of unreal. Well, it's interesting. We tell a lot. We have a lot of young listeners because we've done a really pretty good job of um, promoting the show back to uh, college sports and entertainment management um, majors and I tell them all the time you know don't come to me and say you have five years of experience when you really just have one year of experience repeated five times you yeah. you, you know you were in a job at CMA where probably every day you got to do something different um, yeah you, yeah it was it was so amazing you know um you know, literally Vince Gill would be calling, you know, sometimes like, hey, what do you think about this song? Or, you know, we'd be talking songs for the award show or I would be, you know, in London meeting with some media people. It was just like this, you know, or flying to L.A. or New York um, to meet with CBS. So, yeah, it was every day was different. And, 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 and 
it was just so fun because as a journalist, I also was doing the magazine. So I was getting to pick who I wanted to interview and who I wanted to talk to. And so I was getting this amazing education of the music business by talking to people that were my heroes, you know, and to really get that kind of experience and learn it from those people was just such a blessing, you know, and I knew, you know, sometimes people go, well, I didn't realize what I had until it was over. It's like, no, I knew yeah, you, that this, you knew all I knew along, it yeah. and I wanted to enjoy and really appreciate it in the moment. And I did. Well, you sound like you were a real sponge. You mentioned Clint Black. I, I, I talked earlier about the fact that I love Bob Wills. There, there was a, um, there was a tribute album. In fact, there were several tribute albums that Asleep at the Wheel did. Uh, with contemporary artists around Bob Will's music. And mm-hmm. and uh, Waylon Jennings had written a song that was kind of a slow ballad called uh, Bob Will's Is Still the King. And yeah. on, on this one album, Clint Black does a Texas swing version of Bob Will's Is Still the King that, that may be still one of my favorite songs of all time. That voice was made for Texas swing music. Um, but, boy, during that era, um, really country music, that that was the big explosion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was the combination of country and a little bit of pop and crossover and just a whole lot of things uh, that went uh, there. So, so then, what do you do? Well, I, I ended up after eleven years working there, which was a great experience. I had two kids back to back, and I decided to leave. I left and started my own company, and I'd really gotten. Um, you know, kind of made some relationships at CBS, uh, working on that show for so many years and, and being creative consultant on the CMA awards. So I left there and my first client was the Opry, uh, and they were doing a special for CBS and they, they had not really done one, uh, in the past. And so they asked me to come in. And so I was literally flying back to LA for those meetings and doing some of that. And then, um, at, at the same time, you know, that was going to last like six months because we were really kind of preparing everything and then taping and Vincent and Dolly hosted that show for CBS and uh, helping with the marketing, helping them get a radio deal. So I was doing all of that for them. And then about that time, I had lunch with Sarah Trahern, who was the who's now the, the head of the CMA. Uh, but back then she was working um, out there at, at the Nashville Network. Yep. And so she said, you know, working what? With my, my good friend, David Hall. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And um, so anyway, she said, you know what? You need to think about going to work for the Academy of Country Music. I said, in LA? No, I'm, I'm good. You know, no thanks. And she said, no, no, no. You really need to think about it because Rat Clark, Dick Clark's son, you know, American Bandstand and all of that. If you remember, you know, yep. I know you remember Dick yep. Clark. Well, it was his son uh, was, had just become executive producer of that show. And Rack had at one time, he asked me to go to lunch. I really didn't think he knew who I was that much, but he asked me to go to lunch and offered me a job. Uh, as a producer, and I, it was going to be working straight nights, uh, evenings on a on a live TV show, and 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 I loved the idea of working for him, but it just wasn't the right move. I wasn't ready to leave CMA, and she said, "You need to give Rack a call," and I didn't. I was like, oh, "I don't know." So I I think she called Rack anyway. 
she connected us and Rack said, yeah, you ought to, you ought to think about this. And I was like, well, I'd love the opportunity to work with you. I always thought he was a, a great person and wanted to work with him. And then um, Tim McGraw's manager, Scott Simon and David Corlew's manager, I mean, uh, David Corlew, Charlie Daniels manager, were running the ACM board at the time. And so they started talking to me about coming on uh, working for them. And it was it was amazing because CMA, I loved my time at CMA, but it was very much, you know, very committee driven and, you know, lots of people involved in every decision, and which is all good. You can you know, that's all a good thing. But it was kind of refreshing because I once I started working for them, uh, it was like I'd have an idea and I'd get I'd get an email back from Scott Simon saying, go. It would just be geo. I'd, you know, and it was just like no committee, no big discussions. It was just go. And everything was just go. And it was so quick and so entrepreneurial because it's kind of like when you're you're running behind, you're just like, I don't know. Try it. See if it works. There's no there wasn't a lot of downside to trying new things at that point. And so that was really refreshing for me. So I, I was, uh, helped write farm aid and finished up this show and then started working for the Academy. And, and that was just a totally different experience. And I told him, I was like, if you want me, you can have me, but I ain't moving to LA. And so I ended up doing that job. We, we all said we'd try it for six months and then that was a 17 year run with wow. them. You know, so, a, a lot of our lot listeners of don't there. know the difference, but the Country Music Association is headquartered in Nashville, but the Academy of Country Music really sprang out in the, in the I think, early 1950s. There were a lot of Western artists, you know, yeah. Bakersville, that area, that recorded in Los Angeles and, and felt like they were kind of looked down on or were not... You know, we laugh, you know, at that time it was called country and Western music. Well, they were the Western side of it, of the house, and, and, and formed that. But they always had an, an, an award show. But the award show was usually, didn't y'all do it in, you know, in Dallas and in Vegas well, and we, in other places, well, right? Well, we did it in L.A. For years it was in L.A., and uh, Dick Clark had a lot of connections with Knott's Berry Farm. So if you remember, it was at Knott's Berry Farm, and then when I— when I started there, it was at Universal Amphitheater. Okay. And there wasn't a lot of wing space. There wasn't a lot of, um, you know, fly space, you know, that you could put, you know, fly those pieces, set pieces in and out and up and down and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of limiting. But, um, you know, and you'd have you'd have the trolleys come by with fans right through the, you know, right through the parking lot where you were trying to credential people. It was it was it was fun. But, you know, it had its limitations as far as a production. And and um, they decided uh, one at that point, Bob Romeo was running the organization. He had come in and and he was running the organization and. He and I don't know if you remember this name, but Jack Lehmeyer, he, he worked at CBS Records, Sony Records for years. Um, and they were having some drinks one night after the award show and they ran out of Crown Royal. And Jack said, you know, we need to go somewhere where they're not going to run out of Crown Royal. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 Bob and said, now okay, you know well, the rest of the story, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, this is how we made the strategic move to Vegas. And so Bob said, well, where would that be? And he goes, we need to go to Vegas. He goes, they never run out of Crown Royal in Vegas. <laughs> and so at the next board meeting, you know, we have our normal board meeting. And so Jack raises his hand 
And he said, hey, um, we need to discuss that idea uh, we had. And Bob's like, what idea? You know, like he barely remembers it. He said, you know, the one about us going to, to Vegas. And Bob's like, so we won't run out of Crown Royal? He said, yeah, exactly. And they were like, yeah, that's a good idea. So literally we end up flying to Vegas and, and doing some site surveys and we moved to Vegas. So anyway, it was a, that was a lot of fun. And we moved, I don't know if you remember, but we moved to Mandalay Bay because we thought, gosh, this is a big arena. We don't know if we could sell that out. And then like after three years, we sold it out. There was so much demand. We moved over to MGM and there was so much demand on MGM. We did two. We did, we'd, we'd fill up both arenas. And then we had, at the time it was Blake Shelton and, and Reba McIntyre hosted, and we would drive them over in the middle of the show. It was so crazy. And drive them over in the middle of the show to the other house and then have them come back. It was, it was pretty wild. So anyway, it was a really fun run, but it started because of a, you know, uh, a glitch <laughs> in their drinking uh, after the show one oh, night. Oh, I love so. that. That's where creative, creative, creativity comes from. I had a, I had a buddy named Roy Spence who was uh, with, uh, with, uh, you know, yes. yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roy's yes. a good friend, and he he gave a great speech one time. He said, "You know, where do ideas come from?" He said, "Drinking." He said, "The good news <laughs> about drinking is the worst ideas just get better." And and he said, "It also creates carpooling." Because uh, somebody's got to drive you home, and you may have a better idea. But he he was a big believer in all that. You know, we're talking today a lot about about teams, and I used the analogy earlier about you know being a band leader uh, of leading an orchestra where you have to get all of these disparate parts to come together to play the same song. And if I look at your career at CMA, at ACM, and then we'll talk about Circle in a minute, you, you know, you're, you're a band leader. I mean, you're, you're trying to get all these different folks aimed in the same direction. Talk, talk a little bit about that. I mean, you got record producers, labels, artists, production people, television people, you know, publicists, fans. Ooh, that's a lot yeah. of folks. Talk about it. It is. It is. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that when I, I, I went over to the ACM, we had a strategic planning group and, and we, we started meeting on that. We read, we met at Randy Goodman's house. Um, at the time he was at Lyric Street. Now he's the chairman of Sony, but we met at his house and it was about six or seven of us. And we really started diving into, well, who are we? And, you know, what, what's a, you know, what is our brand? And, and, and Bob Romeo was a big uh, proponent of we're about the fans. And we started saying, you know, where the CMAs um, were, they were kind of the Oscars. We were the Golden Globes, you know, like we were going to, you know, pop the champagne carts and have yeah. a party. Yep. And we were going to also be about the fans and give the fans a vote. Uh, at that time, we created a fan voted award. And so we were really trying to get the industry and the fans and the artists and, you know, kind of all going in the same direction in a way. And, and, and that was a lot of fun and a lot of excitement because we also knew we had to create a lot of value because it's expensive for those artists to come out to an award show in, in L.A. or in Vegas where we were. Um, it, we're in a way game. And so we had to make it fun and we had to make them want to come and we had to offer the fans an opportunity to participate, to get their engagement. And so really trying to, 
you know, to kind of see how is it a win for every stakeholder that you've got. Um, it's kind of fun. It's like a puzzle you're trying to put together. And, and that's, that's always been kind of fun for me and, and a challenge. I kind of like those kind of puzzles. And, uh, and of course, you know, working with a ton of smart people also who are, who, who love that kind of same puzzle is always great. Well, we started the show today really talking about being for fans and, you know, in the country music business, hey, fans pay for everything. They buy they yeah. buy records and they buy tickets and they buy merch. And and the fact that y'all were you know enlightened enough to realize, look, we let's let's reward fans, mm-hmm. let's celebrate fans, um, let's give our artists the, the the way to celebrate and reward fans. I think it was pretty interesting. You know, you're now over at Circle. Um, and you're, you know, it's kind of like putting the band back together. I mean, you're, you're doing a similar kind of job that you've got so many moving parts and we've, we've fortunate enough to work with you, uh, on a project that I say there have been a lot of cooks in this kitchen. And this was, you know, in the pandemic when we didn't have any live performances, y'all were able to do a partnership between the Opry and Circle Television to, produce the the show without fans but we were able to get geico to come in and sponsor the green room and so you know we've got geico we've got their agency red peg you got us at fish bait you got the grand Ole opry you got circle television and you got all these opry artists and you got to get them all to play together and you've done a great job with that talk a little bit about that project well thank you that has been a fun project because you know with the artist one, just keeping um, keeping these shows going and creating a live stream around the Opry during the pandemic where you could watch a really high-quality, beautiful performance of the Opry. Uh, yes, there were no musicians in the background. There were no fans in the front. But you had these artists just singing their heart and soul out for, for people uh, at a time when they needed that connection with other people. And that was just, uh, honestly, it brings tears to my eyes because we would read these comments in the chat room on, on social media. They could watch it on TV. But, you know, at that point, when we were so early in our network, a lot of people couldn't get us. Now we're, you know, we're on, uh, you know, Peacock, Zumo, uh, you know, ca- cable, uh, over air. I mean, you can get us most anyway, but back then you couldn't get us a lot of places. And so people were watching us on social media and to see their comments about, Hey, thank you. This was the bright spot of my week. Or I'm, you know, in the UK and I stayed up, uh, in the middle of the night to watch this, you know, and and that was so heartwarming, one, that we were helping deliver something of value to the fans. And it was also valuable to these artists because it was a memorable and even somewhat scary experience to go out there and realize nobody's going to clap for me. This, this, this house is empty. And to still do that, you know, and, and hats off to these artists who kind of took that chance to do it. And and then to say, you know what, we want to bring this green room experience and this fun experience that happens at the Opry to people, especially during this pandemic, but also just 
what give us a slice of what's going on behind the scenes and to be able to bring that to fans um, through the help of Geico and you guys and, and, and Red Peg and all of us kind of working together and managers of artists. That was really a lot of fun. Well, they celebrate, everybody celebrated the industry. They celebrated the music and they, and they realized that we wanted to do something um, back for the fans because you know we were hopeful the thing was going to end and we were going to bring fans back. But during that period, it, the, one of the things I liked about the green room was I think fans realized you know artists are really talented, but they got the same problems I got. I mean, yes. they're, they're homeschooling kids like we are. They're they're you know they're they're sequestered in their basement. They're uh, they're they're doing this and doing that. And I think it brought a level of humanity and humility. I think, and and the the artists that were they were big time artists, obviously that participated in this. You know, you mentioned Garth and and Vince Gill and and others that 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 participated, and uh, and so I think it really did. I think I think everybody won, and that's what mm-hmm. you want to do. You want to create something where everybody says they're a winner. Right, right, um, and and I do think for the artists. They'll, they have such memories. I've talked to some of them, you know, since then, since we started having crowds and we're so grateful for those crowds and being able to sell those Opry tickets. But, you know, they, they'll, they'll never forget playing to that empty house, you know, um, because it was such a memorable time. And I think they felt like they were really offering a service, you know, and hope to people that look, there are some things that aren't going to change. And this is one of them. And I'm, I'm kind of putting my, you know, my stake in the sand, this is not going to change and we're going to keep going. And, and I, I, you know, I just appreciate the artists taking a chance to do that. You know, that was brave of them. It was, you know, the old concept of the circle and will the circle be unbroken? Well, the circle could have been broken. I mean, we could have we could have ended, and we could have said pandemic one, COVID one, no no Grand Ole Opry, yeah. break the record, end of story. But but you know, people got together and said, no 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 no, we're, we're not going to let it end like this. We're going to continue to be able to do that. I think it ought to be pretty interesting for you if you think about CMA. You had you had an award show. You had um, you know you had a number of uh, of things. Um, uh, that you did, and the ACMs you had a big award show, but Circle is a big old canvas right now. Um, you know, it's it, it's you got a network, and so you've got a lot of a lot of stuff to play with. Talk talk about the fun of that. Well, I I do love that because at the at the CMA or the ACMs, you know, we would do a couple of CBS specials a year, and and that was wonderful. I love that, and we did Music Fest and at uh, ACM we did a festival, so we had we had a lot going on. But this, I mean, we're we're launching like nine shows this summer, and so you've got everything from Clint Black, who you love, that mentioned doing talking in circles, you know, and doing an interview show kind of like inside the actor's studio and really talking about their craft. Um, and then, you know, you've got big Kenny of, of big and rich doing a kind of a, a gearheads type show from his garage and traveling all over the country to, to see, you know, people make crazy creations, you know, these, all these mechanical, if it flies, glides, floats, rides, He's got it. He's got that that covered. And then we just did an event 
um, and I wish you could have come to, with Kyle Petty at the Opry. And he brought a lot of his uh, sports and NASCAR um uh, friends. And then he's doing a show for us, uh, an interview show. And he just did, I just got the pictures on my phone last week of Pitbull and he, he interviewed Pitbull and Dale Earnhardt Jr. And Mario Andretti and, you know, Lyle Lovett. I mean, just this eclectic group of friends that he has, that he's kind of doing a show. It's called dinner drive with Kyle Petty. And I say, it's kind of like comedians and cars getting coffee, but the cars are faster and the food is better. Well, he's, you know, people forget he, he is a musician himself and, and it played. And then years ago, my, the, the, my good friend, the late Christy Atkins, her agency produced a thing called sound and speed in Nashville. That was the intersection of NASCAR. I worked on that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And you remember that benefited Kyle's charity, the victory junction gang and Mm -hmm. Randall Munn and benefited the the country music hall of fame. And so, you know, he's not, he's a guy that has always been connected to the music industry, which I really, I think is kind of fascinating that he's doing this show. Well, and and you talk about full circle, um, with this network is that he, when we did the sizzle reel and we played it for people of the show, he ended it with him, uh, on Hee Haw. And we were, we were backstage in studio a where Hee Haw was filmed. And he said, you know, I, I couldn't have planned this any better. Basically, like I was on Hee Haw these years ago and now I'm working on a show on circle and I'm right back where we filmed Hee Haw. Like that's just, you know, kind of amazing to me. Well, so well, it was it really is, fun it, for it, him. It's interesting. It's all about, <clears throat> it's all about circles and you know, what a great name for a network um, because it is the circle. It's the past, the present, the future. It's, you know, all the great songs, all the great artists, all the great personalities and 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 so you you know I kind of see you now maybe not as the band leader but you're, you're kind of like the chef in this huge kitchen <laughs> you know <laughs> try, trying to figure out how to put all these ingredients together in a way that we we we, we can have something we can all eat. That's funny. Evan Evan says I'm the mother hen. Uh, so I don't know about that, but it has been fun just jumping from one project to the next, and you know, and and kind of helping, um, you know, like, you know, we have a show country countdown in, in being able to, you know, add something and talk to an artist and say, Oh, I, I, I can get that for this show and I can help this one with that. And then what if we got that, you know, I love that kind of, um, that kind of stuff and, and being able to, to, to work on so many shows. It's just amazing. Well, we've, we've told them, the marketing community. And, and, and obviously we at Fishbait were involved in a number of non-rated networks in the college sports side, the SEC and the ACC network specifically. But, you know, when you, when you have a non-rated network to begin with, you got to lead with ideas. I mean, you can't, you can't sell spots and dots. You can't measure the spots and dots. And, and so, you know, we're telling everybody that circle is like this giant omelet station that the eggs are country music what do you want in your eggs? I mean, we, we we can make pretty much what you want from a sponsorship standpoint. And and the ability to integrate sponsors into programming, into promotions, into content, you know, I think that's what that's exciting. Well, and and that's a great analogy, Rick. I love that analogy. And 
And I think Evan uh, Heyman, our head of content, and, and Drew, and, you know, the team has just found these really jewels of, uh, you know, great shows. And some of them, you know, have country artists. There's always that lifestyle element um, that we stay true to. But like you said, we can throw in a lot of different things in in those eggs and, and make something different out of it. And so that has been really um, exciting to work on. Well, I want to leave our listeners with a couple of lessons from your interview today. Number one is at a point in your life, you just said, this is what I want to do. I'm just going to move to Nashville and work in the music business. And, you know, Wayne Gretzky says you miss all the shots you don't take. We, we, a lot of people dream about things, but they don't do them. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, you've had this amazing career because you had the guts to just go chase your dream. I think that's the first lesson. Second lesson is it's a whole lot more fun when you work with people. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, life's a team sport. You know, you've mentioned so many of the great names that you had a chance to work with, both, you know, behind the scenes and those performers in front of the audience that I think is really, really important. Um, and, and so I think there's some terrific lessons today. Hey, listen, we love, I mean, absolutely love working with you and we look forward to what's next. And we thank you for taking the time to be with us today from the bridge. Thank you. I've so enjoyed it, Rick. This is, this is so much fun. I sat here and had my coffee, just like having coffee with you. So this has been so much fun. Well, I appreciate you being here. Thank you, darling. Thank you. Okay, today is an actual rant from the old soapbox. Sometimes you have to be a teammate when you don't want to be. That's called being a grown-up. Case in point, wearing a mask on an airplane. Now, let me make something crystal clear to all of you out there. I hate, let me repeat myself, I hate wearing a mask. Last week, flying from Dallas to Atlanta, well, I was late. You know, I do that a lot. I push my meeting too late, and I'm driving like a bat out of hell trying to get to Love Field to turn in my rental car, which in this case was a rental truck because it was the only thing I could get on the lot. And I actually parked my truck in the rental car lot at 10 after 6, and I'm trying to make a flight at 10 minutes till 7. Fortunately, I was able to jump on the rental car bus and get to the airport and get through security really quickly because I have clear and TSA pre-check and all that. And then I run, literally run to the gate only to find the flight's a little bit delayed and I'm okay, but I'm sweating like a pig. And then I have to get on the plane, yes, and I have to wear that mask as I'm sweating like a pig, that God-awful mask. But guess what? That's what I agreed to do when I booked that flight. And again, when I got my boarding pass. And yes, once again, when I boarded the plane. Of course, then we were delayed from leaving because some idiot on the plane refused to wear his mask. He decided he was simply more important than the rest of us. Dude, when you agree to the rules, then they continue to apply to you like they do to the rest of us. 
They had to get security to come and get him off the plane before we could leave the gate and get on with our lives. I have a new suggestion for the FAA. Just give the rest of the passengers the permission to kick the guy's ass the next time and remind everyone else who wants to not play by the rules that it will happen to them too. And that's my rant from the soapbox. Since I've been so sour from the soapbox today, let's balance it with something sweet on the road with Rick. Now, I'm not a huge dessert person. I'd rather have that second piece of fried chicken or or another buttered biscuit. But there is one exception. I, I have a weakness for donuts. And as a proper Southern boy, and with apologies to my friends at Dunkin' Donuts, I absolutely love Krispy Kreme donuts. In 1937, a man named Vernon Rudolph bought a yeast-raised recipe from a chef in New Orleans and started making donuts in a building in the historic Old Salem section of Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And the rest is history. Now, I grew up in Atlanta, and my um, Krispy Kreme was on Ponce de Leon Avenue. Now, I understand that that building, that historic Krispy Kreme building, recently burned to the ground. But the great news is the guy who owns it, you may have heard of him, his name's Shaquille O'Neal, he's decided to build it back just like it was. Now, when you drive by and you see that sign that says hot donuts now, my car automatically pulls in. A few years ago, I taught a night class on Monday nights at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. Well, Columbia's about two hours from my house. And that class ended at 9.30 on Monday nights. And now I have to drive all the way back to Charleston. Well, the good news is there was a Krispy Kreme right on my way home where I could grab a cup of coffee and a couple of donuts. My store here in Charleston is on Savannah Highway in West Ashley. I actually started a Sunday school class for my church for 20-something adults in that Krispy Kreme store. Don't want to come to church? No problem. Come to Krispy Kreme. So that you could say that hot donuts now is kind of a religious experience. They also raise a lot of money for charity. They'll sell discounted boxes, like significantly discounted boxes, for organizations then to sell at a markup and make money. And recently they did something very interesting If you have proof of having the COVID-19 vaccine, you can come by once a day and get a free donut. That's right, each and every day. And that was reason enough for me to get the vaccine. (laughs) I flew through Atlanta on my way to Dallas and was delighted to find a brand new Krispy Kreme restaurant in Terminal C of the Atlanta airport. It made wearing that uncomfortable mask actually bearable. So what kind of donuts do I get? Well, I love them all, but I'm partial to both the cream-filled and the jelly donuts like my pal Elvis Presley. It's the great Krispy Kreme on the road with Rick. That's a wrap for today. Thanks to my very sweet guest, Teresa George, and to all of you out there who listen each week. I hope you'll join us again next week from the bridge.